I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians as we continue our sermon series there. In 2 Corinthians. This morning we're in chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be reading the whole of the chapter there. I'll give you a moment to turn. Really, I'm giving myself a minute to turn. <laughs> we have a lot to cover this morning, and so let's hop right into the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and For your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We do give thanks, God. We confess your gift, the the grace that is to your people, inexpressible. Thank you, God, for increasing our sight this morning. We pray that you would work the miracle among your people to give us a greater sight of your glory, your greatness, your character, your generosity, your grace toward us. We ask for the gift of faith, that you would give us faith to believe and to remember and to see and to rejoice in your gift. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, that great gift himself and the giver of grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at the this passage particularly focusing on the middle section, this, this past uh, actually few weeks working on a message from 
this chapter. Perhaps this is what happens when you have a few weeks, weeks to work on a message. I managed to write a sermon that uh, is, is definitely not more than an hour and 45 minutes long, I promise. Uh, and so as we were looking at that coming into this morning, we figured that might take up two services. So we decided instead of preaching all two services long, we'll just break it up into two weeks. So we're actually going to look at this passage in two weeks uh, long, and this morning just focus on this middle section. Um, and really, I think the, the passage is in many ways summarized in verse 9. In verse 9, we have the man who fears the Lord. Now, where do I get that? It doesn't say anything about anybody who fears the Lord. It actually does, because verse 9 is a quotation of Psalm 112, verse 9. Now, I encourage you to turn over to Psalm 112 for just a moment. As I'm looking at verse 9 in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it looks like it's talking about God who is distributed freely, who is given to the poor, who has righteousness that endures forever. But then, when I went over to Psalm 112 and I began looking at who's being talked about here, Verse 9 is the quotation, Um, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Great. Who's that? Who is it? Who is this he? If you go to the beginning of the psalm, it says, praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. Who is that? Who's it speaking of? What's the one who fears the Lord? Look how it continues. His offspring will be mighty in the land. Wealth and riches are in his house. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. It's well with the man who deals generously and lends. Verse 6, for the righteous will never be moved. Verse 7, he'll not be afraid of bad news. 8, his heart is steady. And 9, he distributes freely. Well, I think that's really interesting. The Apostle Paul would grab this verse and make it about God. And in Psalm 112, it's about the man who fears the Lord. Why? Why is the man who fears the Lord so much like the Lord? It's a little confusing, really. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He, isn't he the one who knows what the Lord is actually like? Who knows that the Lord is the Almighty? He, he knows the strength of the arm of the Lord. But the one who fears the Lord, who knows what he's actually like, also has experienced his mercy and experienced his justice, his peace, and his generosity. You see, the man who fears the Lord knows who the Lord actually is. He knows that the Lord is the one who is distributed freely. He knows that it is the Lord whose righteousness endures forever. And because his God is his supplier, he is able to be like him. The man who fears the Lord himself becomes one who distributes freely, whose hand is open, not closed. Because the man who fears the Lord's hand is open because the Lord is always filling it. This is why Paul is so free to apply the verse to the Lord. This is the man who fears the Lord, living in light of the Lord. He is the one who is distributed freely. He is the one who has given to the poor. He is the one whose righteousness endures forever, who, through, who, who exercises that gift 
in the world through the one who fears the Lord. The major purpose of the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is, is the whole character of God and a reminder of his gospel so that the Corinthians themselves would be like the man of Psalm 112, like the one who fears the Lord. And, and so through this, this church, who walks and lives in fear of the Lord, the Lord would give to the poor in Jerusalem. Now, really, if you turn back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, really the, the whole thing is, is a matter of a perspective on the Lord, that, that we would see God rightly and we would understand his gospel in such a way that we are transformed and affected by who God is, who live in light of who God is. So if we get this passage right or wrong depends on whether or not we see God. John Piper, in reflecting on this passage, he suggests that there are only two ways to view the Lord. The Lord is either a giver or a taker. The Lord is a giver or a taker. Let's consider what God looks like who is a taker. Well, the one who does not truly know the Lord, who has no genuine knowledge of him, and therefore does not rightly fear the Lord, believes that God is always taking from him. Every command of God sounds like a demand by which he suffers loss. When he thinks of the law of the Lord, all he can hear is the word not. You know, thou shalt not. And it rings in his ear. It sounds like an effort by a powerful bully to take something from him. The whole of the law of God is withholding. The law of the Lord is not a generous prohibition or a protection from evil, even the evils of our own covetous hearts. They are God's way of robbing us of what we could have if it wasn't for God's commandments. God is a taker. God becomes someone that this man must guard against. He hedges all of his obedience. He, he keeps the law, but to a bare minimum. His question is always, how much again do you demand of me? How can I work things out to keep safe the little bit that I have from God's command? This little bit of treasure, this little bit of joy, this little bit of freedom that God will allow me. He becomes like the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees, constantly examining the law for some way to make it work in their favor. Because clearly God, the commandment maker, has made the commandment work against us. This is God as taker. Then we have God as giver. The one who not only knows about the Lord, but has come to know the Lord in his person, his ways, both in his might and in his mercy. He believes that God is always supplying, always giving to him. I had a friend in Wisconsin. His name was Peter. This man was always giving, even taking up a part-time job on Saturdays in his retirement so that he would have more funds available for contribution toward ministries of evangelism and discipleship. And every time I would ask Peter, how are you doing, Peter? How's it going? His response would be, better than I deserve. 
This is a man who overflowed in generosity because he knew the bounty of the God who had been generous to him that day. And every time I saw him, Peter knew the generosity of his God. He was a man who lived in the fear of the Lord. Every command of God to someone like this sounds like an opportunity. It sounds like a gift. The law becomes a generous prohibition by which he is kept from covetous hoarding. God's no thief. He has no wants. He's not lacking anything that he would take from us. God has no need of dispossessing me of my goods or pleasure. The law of the Lord to the one who fears the Lord, who knows his might and his person, who genuinely knows him, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. As Pastor John Piper says, even when this person hears a command coming from God, he hears it as a hopeful gift, not a depleting demand. He hears the command and immediately and expectantly thinks, what good thing does this command lead to? What evil destruction of my own soul does this command guard against? I wonder, for those of you who are parents, what would it be like if we gave an instruction to one of our children and they heard it and they looked at us and said, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't see it but I know the way that you're like. You have the power to levy the command, but you have the generosity to love me. There must be some good in this. There must be some way that you have for me to grow up and walk. That is our disposition to the Lord. If we know him as giver, as abundant giver and provider, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now what follows in the passage, in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, are two perspectives on generosity. And both of these perspectives flow from these two perspectives on God. Look at verse 5 with me as we look at the two perspectives on giving. Verse 5, So I thought, It was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that, listen, it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. A willing gift, not an exaction. God doesn't send us a bill. He gives us a command, but the command itself is a gift given, so too is the deep supply from which we are generous, and so too is the heart that is transformed such that the gift is given willingly. You see, from beginning to end, generosity is the fruit of God's generosity to his people. Now, what's the instruction of the passage? The instruction is to be ready so that you might be ready. Generosity takes preparation. You know how this works. Think with me. We have to look at our budgets. We have to write out checks. We have to set up online giving. 
We have to set goods aside, and we have to set time aside to be generous with. We have to arrange for those who are trustworthy to count it and then properly distribute it, just as the Apostle Paul is doing here. It takes preparation. At Cross Point Coast, we're in the middle of our budget time. Here in August, we prepare for our fiscal year in September by putting together a budget. We make preparation. We're aware of the importance of setting aside time so that our budget would be generous. But we also have to prepare our hearts to give. Do we take that time to be generous? We're not disposed in our sin nature to being generous. In fact, that's the heart of the very first sin, and every sin since. This is why our disposition is to believe that. The reason God has given his command is because he's withholding something. God is withholding. That's exactly what happened when the serpent in the garden said that if we ate of the fruit of the tree, we would be like God. God didn't tell you that. Because he's withholding that from you. He doesn't want to be generous for you. Yes, he said that you can eat of all the fruit of the trees. But if you eat of this one, there's something he's withholding from you. And so instead of receiving the bounty of the provision of the garden and the command to not eat of the tree and seeing that the, the, the bountiful gift in the garden and the command not to eat are actually all part of one generous provision. That God, as creator and provider for his people, knows not only the gift that he has to give, but how it is to be consumed. It's a unified gift, both provision and command. And Adam and Eve, and every sinner since, has seen God as a foe, literally an enemy that must be maneuvered around in order to get what we want because God is withholding from us, we think. But the serpent was wrong. He's a liar. When we reach out to the tree, we will surely die. It was not we who became like God. If we watch the generous God, it was God who became a man. And he went to a tree, not to take, but to give, to ransom us back from the crooked lie of the devil. God is always the giver, whether it be in the command regarding the tree in the garden or in the sacrifice regarding the tree on the hill. Let that gospel of a God who gives generous command and makes provision for sinners who run against his command through the sacrifice of Jesus the Savior, let that gospel, the gift of Jesus, in the place of sinners, prepare our hearts to give. This is how we prepare our hearts. We prepare our hearts by knowing God. By dwelling upon, listen, by dwelling upon the light of the gospel that we might come to dwell in light of the gospel. We dwell upon the light of the gospel, that we might come to dwell in it. This is what Paul has been doing the whole time. He hasn't been spending most of these chapters, many words in this letter that he's written, putting together how to pass the plate, how to set up online giving in Corinth. He hasn't taken multiple chapters 
to, to explain how to do the distribution. He has given instructions at the end of the last chapter. He did see to the practicalities, but he has taken multiple chapters to explain the truth of the gospel in the expectation that it will genuinely inform and transform the hearts of the Corinthian church so that they would be prepared to live lives of generosity. The idea of giver and taker is right here in this verse. Is our relationship with God one where gifts are freely given? Or is it one where God is always demanding more? Is it a willing gift or an exaction? The philosopher Seneca captures the the experience of one whose generosity is little more than an exaction. He says this, No gratitude is felt for a gift when it is lingered long in the hands of him who gives it. When the giver has seemed sorry to let it go and has given it with an air of one who was robbing himself. The one who gives because God is the great tax collector in the sky who feels the same way I do when I fill out my tax returns. The whole time I'm thinking, really? Really? Why do I have to work so hard to meticulously fill out form after form just to send the IRS a bunch of money? I feel like at some point I should be charging them for all the work I'm doing. Try it sometime. I'll let you tell me how that goes, but it's an exaction. I feel like I'm participating in my own mugging. Such a relationship. It's, it's just business. It's just an exaction. But what about relationships where gifts are freely given? Do you know what this is like? Perhaps you've experienced it. When, when you have a close relationship where there comes a point where you begin to not even offer to pay or even ask how much you owe for lunch. Because you know that the nature of the relationship is free-flowing love and generosity. All the questions disappear in light of the reality of a depth of relationship. My youth pastor, Dan, he was constantly buying me lunch. Now, even though every time for for weeks and, and really probably months, I would pull out my $5 bill that my mom had given me before going out to lunch with Dan. Over time, I realized that he was overwhelmingly willing to supply for me. And I would put the $5 bill back in my pocket, and it would wait for the next lunch. In time, I began to do the same for others in the youth group. In fact, from that place, it has become a practice in many of my relationships over the years. I always knew, every time I went and hung out with Dan, that he had me. He was there for me. He wasn't going anywhere, no matter what. Knowing that Dan had me made it easy for me to give. You see, we don't just give because God was nice enough to give us something in the past. It's not like some sort of cosmic pay-it-forward scheme. Friends, the idea of paying it forward is, is a neat idea, but it's a worldly philosophy. That there's some exaction, a tax, a percentage exaction of the salary that God has given us in the past that we have to pay on in the future. No. We give 
Because God's always there. We know He's always got us. We know He'll always provide for us, now and in the future. This is giving in light of future grace. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Our prayer, what does Jesus tell us? What is our prayer? Give us this day our daily, daily bread. I can give willingly today, not only because I know that I have extra provided, but because I know that even if I end up going without today, he'll be there tomorrow. He'll be there tomorrow. This reasoning, here's here's the glory of, of faith in the eternal Christ. This reasoning stretches by faith into eternity where we know our inheritance is what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. For this reason we give, not primarily out of gratitude for God's past gifts, but in faith-filled hope in God's eternal provision. Even if we were to give only a percentage, only a tax, only an exaction, let's run the math, all right? Just real quick. What exactly is 10% of eternity? Go. 10% of unending grace that we have today by faith. For eternity is the gift that we have received by grace, through faith. And we pull on that future grace by faith in generosity. We, we reach forward by faith and we pull to today what Jesus has provided for us. It is our hope, not just for the future, but for today. And from that place, we're free to give. We know God's always there. We know he has us. Verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Sparingly versus bountifully. The point, Paul says. And then he gives this neat little proverb that he's written. The middle reason comes in this form of a proverb, I think, because He's actually dwelling upon a proverb, a proverb that's found back in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. Proverbs eleven twenty four says this, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. It's not difficult to see the connection between this proverb and the parable of the talents. Perhaps you're familiar with it. One is given five talents of silver, another is given two talents of silver, and the final one is given one talent of silver. The, the one with five invests his talents, so too does the one with two talents. But the one with one talent buries and hoards the talent. When the master returns, he commends the first two, saying, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Then what? And then the reward... I got this so messed up in my head. I've always thought the big reward was that they're given even more. 
Like you get five, then you get 10, and then you get 15, and then it just multiplies. That's not what Jesus says. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then he invites them to join in the joy of the master. (laughs) Would you rather have five more? Or would you rather have access to the whole of the joy of the master's house? This is the, the bounty, the fruitfulness that we reap when we invest to the master's purposes. We get to participate in the joy of the master. He rewards with the joy of his presence, access to his household. But the miserly servant who thinks the master is a taker, he's called wicked and slothful, and what he's given is ultimately taken away from them. And ultimately, and more severely, He's cast into the outer darkness. Isn't it interesting that in the Lord's economy, the one who hoards the gifts are the ones who fail to keep it. Whoever would save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Oh, more than that. He'll find it. He'll find his life in the joy of the master. I think there's a key word in here for our understanding of Paul's proverb. I know it's a word that's messed with me for a number of weeks now looking at this passage. The word is sparingly. When we spare something, what does that mean? I just I always looked at this passage and, and looked at the word bountiful. That's a fun one to look at. But what does it mean to sow sparingly? When we spare something, don't we withhold it? Some of my resource may be consumed, but I'm going to try to spare some back. Why? Well, because God's a taker. And it's my job to try to spare some. The one who so sparingly knows that God is going to get whatever he wants. And so he feels stuck. Stuck by the fact that he knows God is real. He knows that God has commands and such. God expects giving, and so he gives some. But the real behavior, the real act, the real motivation is not the act of giving, but the act of sparing. Sure, some is given, but that's only because God's a taker. But the real effort of the person is to spare for himself some small remains from a stingy God. But the one who sows bountifully knows God's a giver. He doesn't feel stuck. He feels amazed. He knows the miracle of agriculture. Stay with me here. If you sow a seed, the seed grows and produces dozens of more seeds. That is the miracle of agriculture. Farmers can put put seeds in the ground, can put fertilizer in the ground, and can put water in the ground, but it takes the miracle of God for seeds to grow up and multiply. 30, 60, 100-fold. And the one who sows bountifully sees that miracle, knows the Lord is behind the miracle in both his might and his mercy, and decides, I'm going to play along. I like this game. Sow one seed, 
see a miracle so bountifully. Watch and be amazed. Shortly following the proverb quoted earlier, we find Proverbs 11.26. Proverbs 11.26 says this, The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Now, you see the word sells, and you think, oh, he's a stingy crook. No, he's participating in an economy rather than hoarding the grain for himself. Why? Well, because he knows that this year he planted, he had a harvest, and then he participates with the people. Why? Why is he free to do that? Because he knows God is a giver. He'll put seed in the ground again, and God will make it grow again. What God's generous provision has afforded is a free-flowing economy of generosity among the people of God. A free-flowing economy of generosity. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, here comes the IRS thing again. (laughs) Taxes. They're coerced. It's simple. If I pay, everything goes okay. If I don't pay, eventually men in suits with guns show up at my door. And so I give taxes reluctantly. Under compulsion. Not that I think taxes are evil or even a bad idea, but I can't argue that the IRS isn't coercive and that the taxpayer doesn't give under compulsion. That's why Paul starts with the heart. Each one must give, it says, as he has decided in his heart. Now, there's a tax document I could fill out. Except for with God. I look at my heart, I find that it's sparing, not bountiful. Giving, it turns out, is a result not of spreadsheets, but of heart math. This is why when we have to prepare not only our possessions and finances to give, like we would prepare IRS documents, we also have to prepare our hearts so that our hearts have a right understanding of the eternal and infinite generosity of God as the foundation upon which we reason, by which we figure, by which we decide what to give. Week after week, we have this practice in our liturgy at Cross Point Coast, in the story that we tell. We have a prayer of confession near the beginning of our service. One of the reasons why we have that every single week is because we also take communion together. And that prayer of confession, along with the word and prayer, prepares us to go in repentance as a people who receive the grace of communion. What if we also had that same sort of preparation of our hearts for the offering? Lord God, do a work in here. I'm not sure I'm ready to give. I think that there's a heart work. There's a calculation that's going wrong in my heart that has not seen yet clearly. There's a powerful reality 
in this verse, that generosity is a heart transaction. That's why if you discover that you're not willing or bountiful or cheerful in your giving, the answer can't be simply, simply just give. Perhaps you've decided to give. This is good. But it's not sufficient. The answer truly to you and to me is my heart has been severely challenged by this passage. The answer to you and to me is perhaps what we need to do is stop and read a book like John Piper's, What Do I Do When I Don't Desire God? Or I should search the scripture to better know and experience God that I might come to live in genuine fear of him in light of his might and his mercy. Now this morning, we have to pause here. We don't have time to continue this morning. Next week, we're going to consider four results of giving in light of the gospel. They're beautiful results. You don't have to wait for me. They're, they're sitting right here. They're so obvious. You can see them. Try to name them. Try to guess the points next week. Honestly, this was going to be just one really long sermon, but instead it's a sort of to be continued. Uh, I hope you'll join us next week for the exciting conclusion of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In the meantime, if we want to live in the fear of the Lord, like the righteous man of Psalm 112, we will not do it by repeating requirements and percentages. Rather, we'll follow the teaching of the Lord's apostle here. Will we be generous to the poor? Will we see to the needs of the saints? Will we see tend to the household of believers? Will we tend to the needs of the gathered church, its ministry, and its ministers? Well, yeah, of course we will. But our appetite for the ways of God will not be satisfied there. We will desire to increase what we'll discover next week. One of, the, one of the results of generosity is the harvest of righteousness from hearts that are willing, bountiful, and cheerful. So let us search. Let us seek for God the giver. Only then will we be transformed, willing, bountiful, cheerful hearts. Practically, let's do that. This week, you've been warned. You know where we're going. We know what the passage will be. We know what the message will be next week. Let's spend seven days committed to seeking the Lord in the Scriptures, seeking Him in prayer, conversations together in honesty and integrity, not about percentages, but about our heart. In confession, let us discover who God is in the heart of His generosity. Friends, there is no greater result that could come from our time in this word than that we would know who God is. And then when we gather next week, we will discover the results of giving in light of that good news, in light of that gospel. We will discover what it means to enter into the joy of the master. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can know you, that we who seek will find that itself is a generous reality, that we can know our maker, more importantly, that you have made yourself known. 
and that by grace through faith we can walk in light, in fear of you, in a knowledge of the wholeness of who you are in your might and mercy. God, I pray that that miraculous fruit of righteousness would grow up in this church, that your word would do its work in our week, and that you would grow up a people whose heart math has been corrected, that we would love you and see you and live lives of generosity for Christ and his gospel. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for that miracle. And if we see it, we will say, those who have sown to know God have reaped a bountiful harvest. Thank you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the great gift and giver. Amen.